Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston. I'm the host of New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today I have Dr. Sarah Halpern Meekin, and I will be talking to her today about her book, Social Poverty, Low Income Parents, and the Struggle for Family and Community Ties. Thank you for joining me today, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Sarah, could you start off and um, give us a brief introduction about who you are and how you came to uh, write this book? Sure. So I'm an associate professor in human development and family studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, I have a degree. My PhD is in sociology and social policy. So I am a sociologist, even though I'm not in a sociology department these days. And um, I came to this project because I study um, low-income families and I study romantic relationships and I study how families manage money. And um, I look at how our social policies, especially at the federal level, affect how family life goes um, in terms of finances and in terms of family dynamics. And so that's sort of the background that that led me to doing this project. And how would you define social poverty? So I want us to think about the needs of people in a more comprehensive way than I think our typical focus on material necessities do. And that's what leads me to think about social poverty. So I'm not denying the fundamental importance of material needs, but I just want us to focus on the fact that people's values and motivations are more complex than a sort of dollars and cents view of them would suggest. And I think our research and policy needs to take that expansive view as well. And so that's what I'm really trying to push forward with this idea of social poverty. So social poverty is a term that I use to describe when people lack adequate relational resources. And so these are trusting relationships with family and friends that are safe and dependable, and they represent a sort of social location where people can safely disclose their vulnerabilities and they can receive acceptance and support. So social poverty is different than financial poverty in that it's inherently a subjective metric. You know, we have a federal definition of poverty or we have the supplemental poverty measure, Um, but social poverty is different. It's people vary in their social and emotional needs, and so how many relational partners you might need is going to differ from person to person. Um, And then I, I guess I would, by way of sort of explaining the concept more fully, I would use the analogy of hunger. So, Hunger is a subjective feeling. We all have different caloric needs, different levels of tolerance for being hungry um, before we get hangry. And um, most of us feel hungry or, or lonely from time to time, some more often than others. But what sets those feelings apart from being food insecure or being socially poor is whether or not the person who's experiencing those feelings of being hungry or lonely can access the resources to meet those needs. 
so we're not so interested, you know, at the societal level or at the research level about my feelings of hunger if I can go home later and, you know, get something out of my refrigerator if I have the money to go to the store and buy something to eat. Similarly, we might not be so concerned about people's feelings of loneliness if they can get on the phone or go visit and see somebody who can help meet their social needs. And so I would say that people's experiences of being hungry or being lonely aren't social problems that need to be addressed through policies and programs, but being food insecure and being socially poor are. And that's because like food insecurity, being socially poor, having prolonged exposure to unmet social needs has harsh consequences. So it's linked to not just negative mental health outcomes, but also negative physical health outcomes on par actually with the effects of smoking they see in some studies. And prolonged social isolation raises mortality risks. Um, conversely, we see that having adequate social resources is tied to better birth outcomes for moms and babies. And it's also linked to more sensitive and responsive caregiving. So these repercussions of social poverty aren't just a matter of sort of hurt feelings for now, but really can have important repercussions for people's well-being and the well-being of the next generation. Excellent. Uh, very well put. Uh, one of the uh, interesting pieces that I found from the uh, from your book is exactly that, the implications that uh, social poverty have on financial uh, poverty and, uh, as well as biological implications that it has on, on young mothers. So, uh, now that we have a, a strong definition of the concept social poverty, could you talk a little bit more about, uh, your approach, your research method, and maybe your sample group that you used for this book? Because, uh, there's a lot of different ways it could be studied, but I think you took a, a, a very, um, strong approach to understanding the stories of these, uh, young parents? Sure. So the empirical data from this study come from a longitudinal qualitative study I did of low-income new parents who had signed up for a relationship education program, which are sometimes called marriage promotion programs. Um, these programs have been pretty controversial. So these are government-funded programs. They got their start in the welfare reform legislation that passed in the 1990s and the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. Um, but nothing kind of happened with them in the 90s. It wasn't until the George W. Bush administration in the 2000s that these programs really took off. And academics and commentators have been pretty critical from the beginning. Um, one called them... I think I can recall it as social engineering by the government. So there's certainly been a lack of enthusiasm for these programs. And um, the research on the efficacy of these programs has been sort of mixed at best. Um, but I was really struck by the positive reaction among the participants to these programs, since that contrasted so starkly with what I'd read about them elsewhere. And so I really wanted to understand that puzzle. Why were people sort of outside these programs having such a negative view of them while the people participating in them were really enthused about them? Um, and so I followed 31 couples for a year, starting from when they first signed up for this relationship education program. All were unmarried at the start of the year. and 
were expecting or had just had a baby together. All were in opposite sex partnerships. Um, most were in their early to mid 20s and most had a high school degree or less. Um, their couple income, if I sort of added together, they weren't necessarily combining finances, but if I added together to get a sense of what resources were available to this baby, um, I saw that they had about $1,500 a month in income when they started the program. So this generally was a group who was really struggling financially. Um, I interviewed them both together and individually. And I did interviews at three points in time over the course of the year. So when they first enrolled in the program, about three months later, when if they had just proceeded through the program, they would have finished the, the main workshop component of it. And then I interviewed them again about a year after they first enrolled. And they remained in my study whether or not they participated or dropped out of the program and whether or not they broke up. Um, in many cases, I saw a lot of changes in couples' lives over this time in terms of where they were living, um, whether or not they were together. They, um, you know, brought babies into their households. In the case of one couple, they had two babies uh, during the year that I um, that I interviewed them. So a lot of a lot of changes going on in couples' lives. And uh, that was uh, something also interesting. Uh, None of them were, none of the participants were married, but uh, they were willing to have a child, but then marriage seemed to be a deal breaker. Could you tell me a little bit more about why uh, marriage was a deal breaker at the time for many of your participants? Well, many had a desire to marry at some point in the future, and a few actually did marry during the course of the year that I was interviewing them. Um, the, I think the place to focus is not so much on why don't they marry, but why did they have a child when they weren't fully feeling ready for marriage, um, given that they did have a desire at some point to marry. And that's often because there's um, sort of ambiguous feelings or not a strong sense of planfulness or control around when you have a child. And so some of these pregnancies were um, in an accident. People weren't intending to get pregnant at that time. Others, people had more ambiguous feelings about pregnancy. It might be nice to have a child, but maybe not at this moment. So some people were um, being less uh, conscientious about contracepting than um, they might have been if they had been very set against having a baby. So um, they were sort of rolling the dice on getting pregnant, basically. And once you get pregnant, um, as all the great work that Kathy Eden and Maria Kafalis have done and have shown in Promises I Can Keep, um, you know, it's really time to then step up to the plate. And people start looking at themselves and their relationship differently once it's not just a matter of you're sort of have, you know, having this relationship, but you're starting a family. And the standards that people hold themselves and their partners to are, are different when it comes when a child is in the on the scene. And then I also uh, remember you pulling um, pulling out some other areas of uh, of disconcert, worry that uh, some of the participants had, and, and role misintegration and, and role overload. Did either of those pieces play a, a, a role, and uh, why to have a child, but but not necessarily to get married yet until uh, until all of their ducks were in a row, until they were fully prepared? 
Well, I mean, I think I think it does. You know, so you're right that people are going through so many different transitions. And I think that's one of the things that um, was really striking to me as I was watching um, watching these couples and they were sharing their stories with me, which was so many of them were sort of doing the transition to adulthood, which means that they're not they're not fully settled in who they are and what they want to be when they grow up. They're not fully settled with their education or with their careers. So they have a sense of still needing to sort of strive or figure things out or see the world. Um, And they're also, you know, we know developmentally during that transition from adolescence into young adulthood, people start transferring primary attachments, first from parents to peers, then from peers to romantic partners. And so there's so many moving parts, so many transitions that are all happening at the same time, it can be really unmooring for people. And I think that's amplified for the young people I was interviewing because they're tackling two other major life transitions at the exact same time. So they're trying to become committed romantic partners and parents all as they're transitioning to adulthood. And, you know, like we were saying before, often these pregnancies are occurring before romantic ties are firmly settled. And so every aspect of life is just feeling like it's up in the air. And to top it all off, the stakes are higher than ever because the way life turns out affects not just you, but also this child whose life you want to make good. Um, And this isn't really, you know, just a matter of people doing things when they shouldn't be prepared, but it also has to do with the context where these, you know, life transitions are taking place. So in addition to the way that lacking financial resources can complicate these transitions, we have a culture today where romantic relationships are fairly deinstitutionalized. So there aren't strong norms around the roles and rules, the social roles and rules in romantic relationships. And that makes these romantic partner transitions more opaque. So people enjoy the freedom that today's relaxed cultural norms gives them around creating their own romantic relationships to look how they want them to. But it also means that there's a lot less guidance and clarity around where people stand with one another how they're meant to treat one another in a relationship. And that makes that sphere of life a lot more challenging to navigate or to feel like you're on firm footing, you know, or you just like two people who are hooking up and, you know, crashing together, or are you together for life just like you're married? You know, there's so much ambiguity in cohabiting situations, which is the case for many of these people. And um, that can make, Things really, um, things really tricky for them. And part of that is because all of these transitions and all of this um, sort of lack of clarity means that it's really hard to develop trust in a relationship. So much of who you are and what you're doing is up in the air. How are you supposed to trust somebody or even yourself? to act with your needs and desires in mind when those are changing and they might not even be clear yet to you. And so when you have this context that makes it difficult to develop trust, it can mean that it's really hard to be um, fully and consistently committed to your partner identity and to your partner behaviors when you're being pulled 
all different directions at the same time? Should you be acting like, you know, a 20 year old boy who's going and hanging out with his friends and drinking and partying? Or should you be at home with your girlfriend who's pregnant and expects you to be acting like a responsible family man? When you're both, you're both that 20 year old boy whose friends are out partying and about to be, you know, a father who's supposed to step up to the plate and wants to step up to the plate. So people are really pulled in a lot of directions and experiencing a a lack of clarity that makes it hard to feel settled uh, simultaneously in all of those roles. And many of the participants uh, declare that they felt uh, perpetually isolated. I remember one of the Young mother is saying that uh, her responsibility is uh, staying home and caring for the child, uh, but she was the, at the age of uh, I don't know eighteen, nineteen at the time. But uh, uh, she she's like most of these eighteen, nineteen year old friends who I had growing up aren't young mothers; they're going to college and doing other things. And then uh, I remember the boyfriend saying that uh, he felt his only role was to go to work and to bring home money that is relatively limited based on the job that he was working. I believe it was KFC, if I remember correctly, or some, uh, uh, some other, uh, some other fast food, uh, industry and, and not bringing home much money to be able to care for the child. So therefore not feeling like he is, uh, accomplishing or fulfilling his role as father. Yeah. So, you know, what you are speaking to with um, some of these parents sort of pulling away from their friend groups, that really speaks to some of these tensions that we see between the parent role and the young adult role, where the expectations of young adulthood or emerging adulthood are that you're exploring, you're trying out different selves, different activities, you're free and unencumbered by responsibility. And our cultural norms around parenthood are exactly the opposite, which is that you are going to put this child first. You, um, you know, are, are not out partying. You are home with your kid. You are taking care of their needs first and foremost. And so what that means is that if somebody wants to adopt that um, parent identity and that parent role fully in a way that's consistent with our cultural norms around what parents do, it means that their lives are sort of incompatible with the lives of their friends who are living this young adult, emerging adult sort of lifestyle. And so often people would describe pulling away from from their friends and that meaning that they had less social support at this time where there were even greater role demands on them. And that really increased the the stakes for these romantic partnerships, because um, I think the couple you were referring to, Ashley and Mark, um, Ashley d- calls Mark her, her best friend. And she says, if I didn't have him, I'd be the loneliest person on earth right now. And, you know, this is She's a very social person, but she and Mark have pulled away from their friends. They say there's a lot of high school drama going on among them. And Ashley says, you know, she's trying to focus on being a responsible, a responsible wife and a responsible girlfriend. And being around her friends is not compatible with doing that. And so that means her social world has really shrunk and her risk of social poverty is something were to go wrong in her relationship with Mark is, is that much higher. And one of the interesting pieces is with this perpetual isolation, the social network shrinks. And if I remember correctly, you said that many of these participants said their social network becomes their family. 
potentially living with their parents or jumping from house to house, depending on which uh, which participants we are talking about. And uh, what impact does that have on, on these uh, couples you uh, bring out in this book? So one of the things we know from, from previous research, um, some of the social capital literature, is that there really can be a tension between getting your financial needs met through your social networks, you know, sort of getting that instrumental support and really maintaining those relationships. So we see that it can be really stressful on people's relationships with their um, friends and family to be on the receiving end or on the giving end um, of instrumental support. And so these situations, while they do help to meet people's financial needs, can often come at a social cost, which is that they um, either don't feel comfortable in these relationships or there's some stress and strain in those relationships because there are um, either expectations of being paid back when you can't pay back or there are expectations of reciprocity that people are uncomfortable with or people... um, feel more a sense of um, a right to sort of assert themselves in your relationship because you're living with them or they're contributing to your well-being, um, your financial well-being. And so those um, those complications of, of sharing households and sharing resources can actually be a source of stress for couples um, in in the sense that they're feeling like they're not uh, living the way they want to live. They want to stand on their own two feet. They have expectations of independence. And because it introduces this instrumental element to these social relationships, that can um, that can be difficult um, for those relationships. And in some cases, some of the strategies taught within these this family expectation uh, program were not even able to be used by the participants because of their family living situation. Uh, one of the examples you provided was the timeout strategy and in a confined living condition where there are a few rooms and you're living with several other individuals, it, it, one of the young fathers found it uh, near impossible for him to take a timeout. Yeah, so this this speaks to the ways that financial resources and social resources can really interact with each other in another way, which is that, um, you know, as we know, when you when you have fewer social resources, that means you have, excuse me, fewer financial resources that can make it harder to buy time and space for developing your relationships with people. And the example you're speaking to, I think, is a really stark illustration of that, which is there, you know, there was a couple who had uh, two young children and they were sharing one bedroom in his cousin's house. And when they got mad at each other, they couldn't take a breather because there wasn't a place to go where you could just cool down. They shared one room together. And so once they moved, not even in, onto an apartment of their own, but into um the woman's grandmother's house where they had more space. It helped their relationship just because they could take a break. You know, when things got really intense, they could, they could do the timeout that they had been taught in this relationship education program and make sure that things weren't ratcheting up when they needed to sort of steady themselves before they came back to talking with each other. And, and that helped them to 
not fight the way that they had before. And so really having this combination for them of a little bit more physical space and um, some of these tools that they could use help them in their relationship. We've talked uh, briefly um, about the about social poverty then and about the impact that it has on the participants in uh, in this study. Um, maybe now would be a good time to transition and talk a little bit about what the uh, what the participants saw to be so good and so positive about these uh, family programs that uh, academics and uh, maybe even some policymakers looked back and said, wait, this isn't the best of program, but uh, uh, with uh, let's talk about a little bit about what you found from the participants when they talked about these programs. Sure. So I, I think to start off with, the desire the program was speaking to was something that drew couples in, um, which was that they have an idea of the family life they want to live and the family life they want to provide their children with. And they're not feeling so sure that they can achieve that. Um, so the program is offering them help with something that they really deeply value and desire, and that's achieving sort of a stable, happy family life. And a lot of these young parents didn't grow up um, with that themselves, and so it's something that they really want to give to their own children. A lot of men talked about growing up without a consistent father figure in the house and really wanting to do that differently for their own children. And so that uh, focus of the program is resonating with what people are thinking about as they're, you know, preparing to welcome this child into the world. So that's the first part is that this focus on building relationships is meaningful to, to couples, even couples who are really struggling financially. The second thing is that the couples really appreciated how they were treated in the program. So they were felt that they were treated in a way that was really respectful and understanding and caring. They felt really cared about by the program staff um, and they didn't feel judged. So, you know, I think it was uh, a testament to a relationship education program that two of the couples who broke up during the course of the program, the moms described program staff as really helping them to have safe breakups, uh, you know, to exit their romantic relationship safely. And they, these women continued talking with program staff even after they had broken up because they were feeling like they were getting a lot of support and guidance and advice um, moving forward in their lives. So, that's part of it is that these these relationships coming into a space where you're respected and supported um, was was important to people and was something people appreciated. Um, and that, you know, that respect and support is shown in a lot of ways that I think we're often kind of dismissive of when we look at how programs run. So things that we might think of as sort of unnecessary program costs are actually ways of showing participants that you respect, care about them, and are thinking about their needs. And so that can include things like just offering people a drink when they come in, you know, in when they come in the door, the same way that you would if you had a guest at your house. You'd say, you want some water? Do you want some juice? Can I get you something? Um, so treating people in that in that kind way is really meaningful. Giving people dinner if you're going to ask them to show up for a program at six, saying, come by at 530 first and, you know, 
have a bite to eat, and then we'll all sit down and do this program. Those sorts of things matter. Um, and then the the third way I'd say that um, couples really saw these programs as as mattering for them and why they had a positive view of them is they felt like the tools that they were being provided with in these settings resonated with the needs that they had. So a lot of couples described communication in particular as an area that was really challenging for them in their relationships, feeling like they could understand their partners and their partners could understand them and they could communicate in ways that were successful and not damaging that they could um, deal with a disagreement without it escalating to places that were um, that were uncomfortable or destructive of the relationship because people said things that in the heat of the moment that uh, are hard to take back later. All of those things were challenges for people, and those were areas that the program really focused on. So it teaches skills, like you mentioned before, the timeout technique and other um, and other such techniques that are, you know, not unique to this program, but are um, a way of of sort of slowing down conflict and slowing down communication to get people to focus on taking one another's perspective and actually understanding one another and to get people to kind of take a break when they needed to so that emotions don't get so heightened that you're just focused on winning the argument rather than solving a problem. And so all of those various forces combined to help make people feel like this program was something that was um, supporting and respecting them, was a place where they could come with their partner and strengthen their bond and was giving them some hope for the future about their relationship. And did you notice any of the participants becoming a bit skeptical when they were invited to this uh, family expectations program? So, you know, this is a program that people do voluntarily. So there's there's nobody being kind of forced through the door. Um, so there's something about the program that's resonating with at least one partner um, in a couple that's leading them to choose to come. Some of that at the beginning can be that they offer some um, sort of financial incentives. So you get a little bit of what they call crib cash, which is uh sort of money you can spend in their on-site store to buy new baby goods. That's attractive to um, to parents. As anyone who's a parent knows, babies have way more stuff uh, than anybody else, and it's expensive to buy it, particularly for people who are cash-strapped. You know, having the ability to, to get a stroller if you don't have one or get a car seat if you don't have one is, is really um, appealing. But a lot of the people who were at first drawn in by the financial incentives would start changing their view of the program once they saw what it had to offer beyond those financial incentives. And I certainly didn't see anyone being um, continuing to go to the program just because they wanted the financial incentives. If the program wasn't resonating with people, they stopped going, even with those financial incentives in place. And um, so there were a few people who were skeptical in the beginning, but their partners wanted to go. So a few moms described doing things like uh, signing them up, you know, to to go to the program that first day and having the cab come to pick them up and then letting their boyfriend know the cab's here. We're going. Boyfriend would say, where are we going? What's happening? Like, you might not want to go at first, but come on, let's do it. And then once they saw what was 
going on at the program, um, they were often sort of won over that this might be something that was worthwhile. And I think uh, something that had to do with that was the sincerity that the uh, workers provided, the down-to-earth atmosphere with the food and the drink and the things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one um, one participant said, you know, they're not trying to just teacher you, right? They're, they care about you as a person. He felt like if he ran into people, you know, at Walmart or something like that, they would want to know how he was doing and not just sort of say, how are you, but really want to know how he was doing. And so people felt like the staff cared about them Um, and they were under no illusions that these were like, you know, the relationships that were going to carry them through their lives. But I think the contrast between that sort of experience at an organization where you go in and the staff treats you in a kind and respectful way is often really different than what a lot of low-income people experience at, in a lot of areas of their lives, whether that's, you know, the way that people get treated at their jobs or the way that they get treated when they interact with um, some, uh, some government benefits programs. So this being a place where they're where they're welcomed, accepted, and supported uh, was really meaningful to people. And uh, I guess really to uh, bring this to a close, uh, what are some uh, what are some things that you hope people get out of this book? I, one of the things that uh, I got out of it is to see that social poverty is not necessarily financial poverty. And financial while financial poverty can be uh, can be implicated or manifested through social poverty, it doesn't necessarily have to be. You gave a, an example of a couple who were uh, stable in their positions, but uh, in terms of financially, they were they had enough money, but uh, social poverty still had an impact on their life. Uh, could you talk, I, I guess, a little bit more about that before? before I guess we go into the what, what you hope somebody to get out of this book, but uh, maybe on how social poverty isn't financial poverty. Sure. So I think there's been so much great work done on like social capital in general and its role in the lives of low-income individuals. And I hope that my work is sort of serving as an addition to that research, not a contradiction of it. Um, But the approach in the social capital literature and in studies of low-income people in particular has been a view of the social ties that they have through the lens of the use value of those ties. So can you get at those financial resources you are mentioning? Can you get a loan? Can you get a job referral? Can you get a couch to crash on if you don't have someplace to stay for the night? And those are all really undoubtedly important, but they ignore the value that relationships have in and of themselves to people. So I think there's um, a lot that we can do to really understand the fact that people do need to meet core material needs, right? We need to have food, clothing, shelter, water, but we also have core human needs that aren't about taking care of just our physical bodies, but taking care of some of the things that make us human, which are social and emotional needs. And when those needs are not met, people will make financial sacrifices, even when they don't have financial slack to do so. 
in order to help meet those social needs. And what I would hope that we can see in the future is more research that's done to understand the circumstances under which people are willing to sacrifice financially to gain socially. So that can include, you know, people choosing to not ask family members or friends for badly needed financial assistance to avoid straining relationships with those people or paying financial costs, really high costs or collect calls, for example, when a romantic partner is in prison. So people are willing, people who don't have, you know, extra money to go around are sometimes willing to endure even more material hardship to garner some social resources or to avoid, you know, hurting their social relationships. And so that means that people are not just acting to maximize their financial well-being, but they also have these competing social needs. Sometimes those might be compatible with their financial um, needs and sometimes they might not be. And I think we want to take a more holistic view of people and understand when those social needs sort of win out, when and why are people um, willing to make financial sacrifices to sort of gain these social resources for themselves to avoid social poverty. I think that would be a definite thing that, that I got out of this and that uh, uh, many readers, I hope, get out of this book. Uh, financial uh, financial stability, financial uh, uh, ability to sustain life is important just as much as, as uh, social stability and uh, integration within these com- communities of people mm-hmm. uh, is also important. Uh, uh, going into other books like uh, Durkheim Suicide and Social Integration and the significance that it has uh, for people. Uh, that's that's something that I might relate to this book. But uh, yes, thank you uh, for writing this and thank you for starting the conversation. So what are you working on now? Well, I have uh, two uh, qualitative projects underway. I'll tell you about each briefly, and I'm unsure of the ways that social poverty may may emerge. It sort of seems to be the thing that once I started uh, thinking about social poverty, I started seeing it everywhere. Um, but we'll see how how it uh, emerges in these two other projects. So one is a study of prime age men who are between the ages of 25 and 54 who are not in the formal labor market. Um, we know that labor force participation rates for prime age men have been declining um, for decades. And that's sort of been masked by the fact that until fairly recently, women's labor force participation rates were rising. And so, you know, we had a lot of people in the labor market still, but that's no longer the case. And so we have more and more men who traditionally would have been in the formal labor market who aren't. And economists have been doing some, you know, good work studying why that's happening. But I really wanted to make sure that we have the voices and perspectives of the men themselves in that discussion. And so uh, we've been doing interviews with um, men who are out of the labor market, um, who are living in rural Wisconsin to understand uh, how they make meaning in their lives, what activities they do, how they make ends meet, those sorts of things. So that's one uh, one project I'm continuing to work on now. And the second that I'll mention is there's an income support experiment that's going on where 
um, poor mothers are being unconditional, are being given unconditional cash gifts, um, either small gifts of $20 a month or larger gifts of $333 a month from the month that their babies are born. This is called, um, this is called the baby's first years. Uh, project. And I am lucky enough to be able to do a qualitative sub-study of uh, that project. So their research team will be tracking, you know, children's outcomes and um, those sorts of things. But I'm going to get the opportunity to lead a research team who's interviewing a group of the moms who are participating and to find out what it's like for them to um to be getting this extra money, how they think about allocating that money and um, how they how they see their lives unfolding, given the financial resources um, that they have and the financial resource, the financial decisions that they're able to make um, with this additional gift money. Wow, these both sound like uh, very exciting uh, research topics, research projects. Uh, what's the, what form do you see them being uh, written up in? Is it going to be a book? Are there going to be books? It's very hard to say in advance, you know, with these qualitative projects that are that are inductive, you just don't know what you're going to find and what the story is going to be. Um, so I certainly didn't know, you know, before I started collecting data for the social poverty project that that would turn into the book that it is, um, because I didn't even have these ideas about social poverty yet. So I'm excited to see what new ideas I, I learn about from the people I'm talking to. Well, thank you again for joining us on New Books in Sociology. Again, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Look forward to talking to you soon, Sarah, and uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Michael.